Hello, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome back to Blitz on the Balcony. I am your host, Zach Zook, and it's another week. Combine was last week and weekend. We are going to wrap up the Combine. We'll talk a little bit of XFL to start off the show. Uh, Battlehawks win over the Seattle Dragons, uh, sweeping a two-game homestand. I think they got the D.C. Defenders uh, next weekend, who are plummeting right now. Um, so we'll talk a little XFL to kick off the show. We'll talk a little NFL Combine wrap-up. And then we'll uh, give a CBA update and a free agency update uh, so maybe a little bit of a shorter podcast today um, before the league year kind of gets kicked off. And until these this CBA is done, there are there's a lot of stagnation going on in the free agents market. So there's a lot of rumors swirling around right now. I mean, it is it is smoke and mirrors season, baby. Uh, teams are getting tied to certain players. There are rumors swirling left and right about who likes what in the draft, and, you know, this is about the time of the year uh, the hot stove of the NFL gets uh, heated up. But uh, we got some good stuff to get to still today. XFL Week 4, Combine Wrap-Up CBA and the FA. So uh, without further ado, let's get into the podcast. Okay, first things first, you know, we got to cover the local angle. That takes uh, takes precedent always. So we had more football in the loo. This was the second weekend in a row that uh, I keep on calling it the uh, Edward Jones Dome. But now it's the Dome at America's Center, I think, is the technical name for the Battle Hawks uh, new stadium. And they had a good game against the Seattle Dragons. Jordan Ta'amu was fantastic. I think this was... Without a doubt, I mean, his best game so far in the young XFL's existence. And as a team, I felt like maybe this was the best that they had looked all season. I mean, tough to top the home opener against the Guardians in which they blew them out. But I think the Guardians, maybe the Vipers, but I think the Guardians are probably the worst team in in the league. So you kind of expect that to a degree, especially with the crowd factor, the hype factor heading into this game for the Battle Hawks. But to keep that momentum going into this past weekend against a Dragons team that has been pretty solid. I mean, it hasn't been that upper echelon. It hasn't been talked about like the Roughnecks or the Defenders, but it's it, it's a decent ball club. And so to really have that game in hand and I know the final score ended up being really close, but the final score I don't think really was indicative of how much better the Battlehawks were than the Dragons. Uh, And that's that's something I say a lot of times about NFL games. Like, it'll finish as a seven-point game, but you still got your ass kicked. You know what I mean? Like, we see that happen all the time. Steelers will beat the Browns 24-17, to but it's like the Steelers were never in jeopardy of losing the football game, right? And it's the same as the case here. I don't think the, the Battle Hawks for really a second thought that they were going to lose at home to the Seattle Dragons, and they did a nice job. So this next game coming up is really... I think intriguing because you have the DC Defenders who alongside the Roughnecks had by far the most hype after two weeks and since then one of those teams has gone on and uh, 
proved proven worthy of the hype, and that being the Houston Roughnecks, who got a big victory over the Dallas Renegades in the uh, the, the in-state rivalry <laughs> of the of the XFL. But the other team, the DC Defenders has gone completely belly up. Cardell Jones has looked awful. I think in the game last week, he threw four, five interceptions. And then in the game this week, this past weekend, they lose to the Vipers. And so I think this is kind of a bad spot for the Battlehawks because the defenders are going to come into this game highly, highly motivated. The Battlehawks will be on the road. DC will be at home. The Battlehawks... In in a short 10-game season, you never want to talk about complacency or think that that could play a factor, but just the urgency level of D.C., I think, uh, will be tough to overcome here because it's not like their season's on the line here, but I think that they definitely are starting to look at their season in a different light than they did after the first two weekends. After the first two weekends, you're thinking, okay, we have one of the best quarterbacks in Cardell Jones. We have one of the best rosters. We could win this entire league. And now after the past two weeks, it's like, well, we need to just make sure that we can make the playoffs. The STL is a game ahead of them in the East right now. And so this is a big game for position. So uh, I'm looking forward to watching it because the only other real good team I think as we got to see STL play was the Roughnecks in which they lost that game. So uh, looking forward to them... Uh, coming out against the D.C. Defenders. Well, the Renegades, I think the Renegades are actually a solid ball club. Unfortunate that Landry Jones got hurt, uh, got, got his knee rolled up. I never saw what happened to him. It looked pretty bad, though, so I don't know where they go from here. But uh, that week one game was very close uh, down in Dallas. So uh, if STL can win this game on the road against D.C., man, the sky's the limit because I think the test is going to be tall. But... Again, it's just Jordan Tamu is starting to figure it out. You can feel that he's starting to get a rhythm in this offense. These guys are starting to play with a little bit more cohesion, and you can feel the chemistry between Tamu and his receivers, between the backs and the offensive line. They're really starting to gel. I mean, uh, Matt Jones and who's the other back? Oh, Kristen Michael. That two-headed monster back there is very impressive, and they're getting more guys into the act. Uh, the defense is insanely good. Uh, that's really what they kind of are hanging their hat on right now because they have been excellent. And so if they can keep that up, I mean, it, for D.C., it doesn't get any easier, right? I mean, you've had two bad weeks in a row, two terrible weekends of offense, and now you have to face maybe the XFL's best defense in the Battle Hawks in a, in a, in a gritty bunch. Uh, Coach Jonathan Hayes comes from the Cincinnati Bengals and Marvin Lewis's staff, and they play AFC North football, and as much as I like to clown on the Bungles, uh, just as much as the next guy, can't deny how good some of their teams have been, uh, in the regular season at least, so he has taken that culture that Marvin Lewis brought uh, and kind of turned around what had previously been one of the most embarrassing NFL franchises of my lifetime. Uh, for a brief moment in time. So he has implemented that in STL, and I think it's really paid off uh, so far in the early part of the season because they're just more physical, they're tougher, and they are more fundamentally sound than their opponents so far. And so we'll see if that remains the case as they play tougher competition. But uh, I see no reason why the Battlehawks can't get a get a road win against the D.C. Defenders next weekend and shut down Cardell Jones for the third week in a row. 
I want to talk about the Combine. That has been probably the biggest NFL story uh, since we last hopped on to record, and we previewed it for the last couple weeks, and now the time has come to recap what uh, what we've seen. And I told you on the podcast about kind of what matters and what doesn't, and I think that that still holds true. Um, I think that this has been the first year in a while where I feel like we haven't had very many crazy stories that came out of the combine. Uh, so it's been a, it's been a pretty quiet weekend, which I think is good. I mean, you don't want to hear some of these stories. A lot of times are negative. I remember last year it was about Kyler Murray and how he was so awkward on the Dan Patrick show, and that kind of made you question what type of a dude he was. And then it was Billy Price. I remember tore pectoral at the combine. Jabril Peppers. I remember failed. Uh, his drug tests at the Combine. There's been a number of different stories, and a couple guys did come up lame on their 40s. LaVisca Chenault uh, pulled up lame on his 40. And who was the other wide receiver? I don't want to misrepresent him at all. Uh, it was another one of the top guys. Anyways, name escapes me right now. I'll think of it later. Uh, so, but but everybody had had escaped injury for the most part. Nobody got injured during their workout. Uh, seriously, like to the Billy Billy Price point where it was like he needed surgery on his pec and was gonna miss his entire rookie year, most of it. So, uh, the the guys that rose fast, we'll talk a little bit about them. Uh, the guys that may have uh, taken a dip for right or wrong. Again, I said that I have been vehement in. My stance that I I don't I think that these are taken out of context. Uh, too much rides on these. It's not as important as the internet thinks. And I think the NFL is kind of catching up to that. But the NFL can get caught up in it too. I mean, as we've seen, I laid out the examples last week. Orlando Brown, DK Metcalf, guys that have slipped because of a bad combine uh, end up going later and can become huge value assets and value draft picks for their drafting team. So we'll start with some guys that killed it. Henry Ruggs, awesome. Ran the 4-2. And again, for right or wrong, he's going to go up very many draft boards. I suspect he goes top half of round one. I think he'll be a top 16 overall pick. Now, would I do that? Eh, I don't know. I don't know. But that's how he's going to be viewed. He's going to be viewed as a Tyreek Hill type guy. He could get drafted ahead of C.D. Lamb even, I think. I feel like Jerry Judy is starting to become the consensus wideout one. And and I'm going to talk way more in depth about the prospects as we get further along into the process. So uh, some just some surface level stuff for now. But I think because of how good, how much of a matchup nightmare rugs can be, I think that... Some teams would value that over maybe even a Jerry Judy type, uh, just because he is so tough to guard on the field. So he's gonna be—he's a guy that definitely earned himself some money. Oh, the other guys that had hamstring issues were Patrick Queen and uh, uh, Kenneth Murray, two linebackers, two of the top ones actually. So uh, they both pulled up lame on their forty, along with uh, Chenault who either pulled up lame or I don't even think he ran because he was nursing a groin or a hamstring injury. So uh, guys that kind of dropped, Quintez Cephas out of uh, Wisconsin ran a 4.72, a 4.7840. To put it in perspective for you, that is, it's very slow. Um, I ran faster than that in high school or about that in high school. 
Um, didn't run faster than that until college, I suppose. But uh, Quintez Cephas, very, very slow. I mean, almost slow, slow enough to the point where it's like, well, you can't really take him because he's, he's below that benchmark of being able to create separation because he's so slow that there's just no way he's going to be able to get off of secondary players because he's a glacier out there. So he did himself a disservice today. Not that he was going to be a high pick anyways, but he pretty much entrenched himself as a day three selection out of the Big Ten, out of that wide receiver group. Um, Clyde Edwards-Hilaire didn't test very well in the running back group, but we knew that. Um, I I think we said that on this podcast. Like He's not going to be a guy that tests very well. But he just needs to hit those those benchmarks, and he did. And it has no bearing on how good of an NFL player he's going to be. So he may fall down some boards, or some guys, some running backs may pass him up because of their explosiveness. But Clyde Edwards-Hilaire still is what he is, man, and he's still a damn good football player. You don't, you know, break as many tackles as he did in college by accident. I mean, he just ran through people and displayed incredible athleticism, leading the uh, national champion run, run rushing attack. So he's a guy that may slip down some boards because of the combine, but I tell you what, he shouldn't because he's a very, very, very good football player. A guy in the running back group that jumped up, DeAndre Swift, I think, did about what everybody expected him to. Real explosive athlete. He kind of confirmed that at the combine. I don't think people expected Jonathan Taylor to run as fast as he did. He ran, my man's ran a 4-3-9. And I'll, I'll tell you this, I'm still watching a uh, film of all the prospects, and I will be bringing Bruise on the Balcony and Blitz on the Balcony in, in specific, the most in-depth draft coverage around. Uh, that's my goal. It's not comprehensive. I'm not going to do every single prospect. But the guys I do watch, top 10s or so at the position, I, I want to make, I want it to be as informed, the best draft coverage that you can get anywhere for free. And I'll tell you right now, through the running backs I've watched, Jonathan Taylor's been my favorite. And he was my favorite in the fall, and it hasn't changed now. And the 439, I think, just vindicates it. He's an incredible athlete, and he's not getting enough credit. Uh, everybody really loves DeAndre Swift, and DeAndre Swift's a really good football player too, and so is J.K. Dobbins. But I don't think Jonathan Taylor has really gotten uh, quite the credit he's deserved uh, with all the stats he's posted and how he's carried the entire Wisconsin football program for Paul Christ over the course of his career there. I thought he made a pretty, pretty impressive uh, exclamation point on his pre-draft process with the 4-3-9. I think he opened some eyes to some people that maybe were doubting him. So it'll be really interesting to see where he goes. I think that uh, he could sneak in there on round one. Uh before, I think really the only player that was being considered at the running back position on night one, the top 32 picks was DeAndre Swift. And now I feel like Taylor has legitimately entered that conversation. And as we move into the 20s and uh, the back end of that first round, he's a legitimate first round talent. And I think he, he was a lot more explosive than people thought. Mizzou guy, Albert Okoebenum. They can't say his name, but I can. Albert Okoebenum. From the University of Missouri, he's a true son. I actually had a class with him uh, back in the day. Funny Alberto story. I just remember he walks in with a bunch of his football buddies, and I'm sitting maybe a couple seats over from him or a row in front of him, and they just keep just ragging on the guy, who was a freshman at the time. He was a true freshman, 
and I was a year ahead in school of him. So I was a sophomore. He was a freshman. And all the football players were just ragging him on his name <laughs> for being called Albert. And they were uh, they just kept saying his name, Albert, Albert, and yelling it out and embarrassing this poor guy in front of all his classmates. And I tell you what, he has grown into quite a beast uh, he was not. He was not how I see him on TV when I, uh, I had that class with him back at Mizzou. He has grown up, and he impressed. Ran. I did he run a four three nine two, or was it a four four? I think he ran a four four. But regardless, he just blazed the forty, and I did not see that coming one one bit. But here's the problem for Albert: is the the forty time doesn't always correlate on the field, right? Some guys play faster than they show in the 40. I think Clyde Edwards-Hilaire is a good example of that. Some guys play slower than they show in the 40. So you may have a long stride and can be explosive in the straight 40-yard dash, but the knock on Albert O is that he kind of doesn't really know what he's doing when he's running routes. He's an explosive athlete, big guy, outstanding at finding the ball in the air, contested catches, all that jazz. But he can't really run. He's kind of just lost when he's running routes out there. And so the 40 time doesn't really help you if you can't run the route, right? If you're not going to get separation, if you can't, if you're rounding off curls and you can't get in and out of your breaks, that, that explosiveness is different than the 40 yard dash. Uh, so again, I think he might rise up some boards because of that 40 time. But I think if, if guys study the tape, they'll still find kind of that negative, and I think it may negate his 40. Um, in terms of alignment, oh, six foot seven, 365-pound Mackay Becton out of Louisville ran a 5-1-40, which is insane. Uh, guys, we had offensive, like, we had, like, skill position players in high school. I mean, just to put it into perspective how athletic these guys are, how, how freakish of athletes they are. We had high schoolers like linebackers running running five second forties, five one forties. This guy's six foot seven and three hundred and sixty five pounds, and he ran five one. It's absolutely insane, and he's a he's a beast, freaking nature to begin with, and so he just crushed the combine. A really nice job by him. Um, in terms of the defensive guys, I'm trying to think if anybody really stood out. Not really. Um, in the quarterback drills, it, the toolsy guys always look the best in this. Like Jordan Love looked awesome, just hurling 70, 80 yard bombs down the field. Uh, Jacob Eason, who also has a live arm, looked good. Jake Fromm didn't look as good. I mean, uh, I, I was listening to a couple scouts that were like, yeah, it kind of. It was a bad luck thing for Fromm because they go in alphabetical order. So Eason goes right before Fromm. Um, and unfortunately for Fromm, there was nobody in between he and Eason. So Eason comes up six foot six frame with this electric arm. He's just chucking it all over the place, making deep outs look easy, throwing the deep ball way down the field, throwing that deep corner. And then Jake Fromm comes out there and wide receivers having to slow down for the ball because he just doesn't have the arm strength. That's not his game. So it was kind of a bad situation for Fromm to be in. He kind of, I don't know, you could argue he looked kind of bad in that. That's just that's not his thing, though. So I, I don't know. For me, it wasn't as big of a deal. Um, but I think Eason, the, the tools he guys always impress at this. I thought Jordan, uh, not Jordan Love, Justin Herbert made a pretty good name for himself. 
um, with the throwing drills. I thought he performed pretty well. And then, of course, the Toolsy guys and uh, Jordan Love and Jacob Eason. You know who I thought actually sneakily improved his, his stock at the Combine was Jalen Hurts. It's not that we didn't think he could throw the ball because he has been able to, to pass, but he looked pretty good during those throwing drills. I mean, his arm was no weaker than Jake Fromm's. It wasn't necessarily a strength, but I don't think it was a minus like some people thought. Now, the processing, the accuracy, that sort of thing is what he's going to get knocked for, but he has an NFL ability in terms of the arm strength and the ability to place it because he's an athlete and he can throw it. And so I thought he did a nice job. Um, But yeah, that'll wrap it up for the Combine 2020. Another good year. Daniel Jeremiah, uh, one of my favorites, his second year hosting it now that Mike Mayock is the GM. And of course, Rich Eisen, Michigan man, uh, doing doing some great work at the Combine, give you so many good tidbits of information to latch on to and uh, digest as we move through this. And, of course, he does the Run Rich Run for St. Jude's to raise money where he runs. Old man goes out there, runs a 40 for charity. Love it. It's a fantastic business idea. So uh, that'll put a bow on it. Combine 2020. Draft is next. Okay, I have a quick CBA update that I want to give you all. They're set to vote on it pretty soon. And really all I want to do is go through some points. Uh, J.C. Treader, one of the representatives for the uh, NFLPA, had a pretty good uh, outline of what this, what this new de- deal impacts, entails, and put it out in a, in a, in a tweet. And so I want to go, uh, we'll go point by point kind of quickly here. Um, and we can kind of look at, so, so to, to help aggregate kind of what this means and uh, decipher kind of what we think that the, the pluses and minuses are. So uh, he goes on in, in the first paragraph kind of talking about the CBA and the, the big week with the 17th regular season game, the extra wild card game with the two seed not getting a bye. So the uh, the brass tacks here where he, he first kind of gets into it is that the, the 17th regular season game, an extra wild card game, basically means, uh, you know, a longer season. Regular season still only has one bye week under, uh, under this new set of rules. And then he kind of gets into his points. He said... Uh, Players are guaranteed 48% of the revenue under this new deal. The media kicker is not guaranteed. It's based upon increase in media contracts. So all they're guaranteed is the 1% bump in revenue from the previous CBA, which is still millions of dollars, right, from 47 to 48%. That's why these deals get kind of ugly to negotiate because decimals of percentage points is a, is a lot of money because the company is so big. But the media kicker not being guaranteed, I think, uh, basically means is because it's dependent on the next round of TV deals, which can't get done until the next CBA. So while it's not guaranteed, it's probably likely. I mean, if the new CBA gets signed, then, then the next t- round of TV deals are expected to be much higher and uh, it should make the NFL a lot of money. So uh, while it's not guaranteed, they would likely get it. The funding rule, and this is uh, this is players' guaranteed money that the owners have to place in escrow. So there was a rumor when Khalil Mack got traded that one of the reasons the Raiders didn't want to sign him to a huge deal 
is because the that Mark Davis, who is one of the most cash poor owners in the NFL, didn't have enough money to complete the deal because at signing he would have had to put all of Khalil Mack's money in escrow. And the reason this 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 rule uh, came into effect, it's kind of outdated now, but they wanted to make sure that the players who had signed the contract, in case the NFL went belly up, that they would still get their guaranteed money at signing. So it made it so that the owners then have to put that money in escrow. So let's say Khalil Mack signs for $75 million contract over four or five years. Well, whatever the guaranteed number is, uh, Mark Davis has to put it in an escrow right then and there. He becomes $75 million less rich, right? So uh, basically under this under this new deal, in the previous deal, the owners would have, ha- would have to refund all guaranteed money over $2 million. In this deal, it will pump the number to $15 million and eventually $17 million per team. They wanted the rule completely removed, so it's a step in the right direction for the players. But the reason they want it removed is because teams use it as a bargaining chip to limit players' guaranteed money. Because they sell it as, well, hey, it's less active cash for us to spend. The more we have to put in escrow, that, that's less money that we have to spend on other players, on stadium upgrades, on whatever, right? Because those funds immediately uh, become liquidated and just are sitting there to be set aside to be paid out to the player over the life of the contract. So... Uh, The second point he has on here is player salaries. The minimums will jump in the new CBA, and they wanted the new player minimum, which is at 500K now, to jump up to 700K. Right now, under this new proposal, they raised them, but it would still take three years into the deal for them to reach the numbers that they wanted above four minimum entry players. Non-minimum players will now receive an extra bonus check of 117th of his P5 salary. The important thing to know about this bonus is that the money will be coming out of other pools. We will most likely need to take money from the player performance and other programs to pay the non-minimum players. In other words, money originally planned on on adding to the player performance pool, which usually goes to minimum players, would be moved to pay the non-minimum players instead. So basically what they're doing, this is kind of a small minutia point, but uh, that money that would get, be paid to players on minimum contracts, third-round picks on their rookie four-year deals, would be used to play uh, non-minimum p- players, right? Like veterans. So uh, uh, that's that's kind of what he's talking about there. Uh, his next point that he talks about is the entry-level system. He says that the problem with these clauses are that we are tying escalators and money to Pro Bowls, which is obviously problematic because the Pro Bowls, and he goes on to say this, is is a joke. And we talked about that on this podcast when the Pro Bowl rolled around this year. It's a popularity contest. If you're on a better team, you're going to make it. How hard is it to make a Pro Bowl on the Cleveland Browns? I mean, pretty hard, right? So, uh they need something that's a little bit more valid. I mean, if there's money tied to this and finances, you can't tie it to something as fickle as the Pro Bowl. So he said that you'll also only qualify for these clauses if you are not the original, if you're the original ballot Pro Bowler. So like, let's say a guy gets hurt or he's in the Super Bowl, you get invited to the Super Bowl at that, to the Pro Bowl at that point, you still don't get the bonus. You have to be an original member. So thus, in increasing the uh, problems with getting your money for said bonus, right? 
Now, the other point he brings up is the practice squad players. And I thought this was really interesting, and I hadn't heard this before. The practice squad players under this new deal would be locked into their practice squad salary. So what typically happens is they would negotiate up from the minimum. And last year, he notes this, 32 players negotiated above the practice squad minimum. That wouldn't even be allowed under this new deal. That's incredibly team-friendly. So like a guy like Keelan Doss that got cut from the Raiders and several other teams wanted him on their practice squad, he can negotiate a higher deal under that minimum and therefore get get to go get paid a little bit more because the team that is wants to have him on the practice squad uh, more will be willing to will be willing to pay him that kind of small difference pennies to them, but for the player that's it's kind of it's kind of a big difference. And like I mean, obviously it was pretty common last year. Thirty two different players were able to negotiate up from that minimum. So here's the other interesting thing about he says about rosters. Veterans without a credited season and quarterbacks with one credited season but played fewer than 25% of the offensive snaps uh, are now allowed to participate in four of the seven weeks of rookie development program. So basically, if you got injured or didn't play very much, they could kind of make you repeat it. So that's kind of bullshit. I mean, if I'm a player, it's the Michael Scott meme. Don't like that. And lastly is free agency. The qualifying offers for RFAs, restricted free agents, are still not guaranteed. A team can give you a qualifying offer and cut you with no cost to them. And he said there will also be no change in the franchise tag or transition tag rules, which would kind of be pissed, which would kind of piss me off because I think that's the most team-friendly thing. If you were going to argue for anything in this deal in terms of like the way free agency in the league operates with uh, player movement, that would be the top thing I'd want changed because the NFL team kind of owns you with the ability to, to tag you uh, multiple years, too, at a time. There's no limit. I mean, I think they, they can tag you multiple years in a row. I mean, look at the Kirk Cousins thing. So uh, the, the last thing I want to mention, there's kind of the work rule stuff where he talks about the extra – preseason stuff, extra padded practices and hours, uh, which is eh, whatever. But the holdouts is is interesting. He says, under this deal, if any player beyond five accrued season holds out for a single day of training camp, he will lose an accrued season and all the fines will be mandatory. So when Khalil Mack was holding out, and I guess it's a bad example because he didn't end up coming back to the team. He was traded. But when Yannick Ngakwe held out of the Jaguars, there's a better example, he was fined then, right? Typically, when those players come back to camp and report, the team just waves the fines. So under this new CBA, though, the the fines are going to be mandatory. If you hold out, you're losing an accredited season, and you're going to have to pay your fine. So... Uh, t- team, and he says that in, in the current form, the teams have wiped out uh, fines for players that have held out. So they're also increasing the amount of the fine that the player would get for each day of the holdout. And so, based on, and we know the obvious points, right? The 17th game season is the sticking point. But there were a lot of details in here that he posted that I thought were really interesting that I hadn't heard about. And all in all, I got to tell you, this deal sounds like it fucking sucks if you're a player. There's no way I'd vote yes on this. And I can't imagine they do. After reading it, I really can't imagine they do. 
I, I don't really know what the benefit is. One fucking percent of revenue? And I saw that somebody tweeted this today. Schefter had retweeted it. If you walk away from this deal, the NFLPA is taking a gamble on whether or not they can do better next season. Uh, yeah, I can. I, I As a player, this is, again, the rare time I hold bargaining power. Because you can't play the fucking game without the players. So, yeah, I think I can do just as good next season. And if I have demands that I want met, and I'm willing to walk away from the table, then I'm going to have them met. And so if the players have, they just need to be firm and united in their stance. That's really all it's going to take to get it done. Because at the end of the day, the NFL will bend. They will, they, will, they will not go a year without football. They will not enter a lockout. Because that is the only thing that could derail the, this company that is just skyrocketing in the U.S. right now is a holdout. It's the last thing they want. That's why they're trying to negotiate it this year. And it, it, I can't imagine this gets passed. I, 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 I will be surprised if it gets passed, if the players pass it. Because I, I, don't, I don't think it will. I think that they're going to resoundingly vote no on this. All right, last thing I want to talk about is a free agency update. Everson Griffin looks like he's going to be headed back to the Vikings. Uh, we got new Tom Brady rumors. There have been rumors circulating about uh, whether or not the San Francisco 49ers could sign Tom Brady and Jimmy G could then be traded back to the Pats. Um, Tom Brady, obviously from California, would get to play in his home state. I think that this is more of a football wet dream than any substance. And uh, Rappaport even said that himself today, that there's really no, I mean, as of right now, substance that from anybody he's heard close to the organization. It's just a, it's just a rumor at this point. So uh, I don't think there's any smoke, there's any fire to that smoke. Uh, I think it's, it's a, I don't know, it's kind of a nice idea, a nice rumor, but why would the 49ers do that? Uh, Bill Belichick would would actually cream in his pants if that happened. So, uh, yeah, I don't think Kyle's that dumb. I don't think uh, John Lynch is that dumb. He made the comment on part of my take a couple years ago. Well, before we asked about Garoppolo, we asked for we asked about Tom Brady, and Bill laughed me off the phone. I, I don't I don't buy that story. I, I don't think that actually happened because uh, Bill would have traded him. <laughs> Bill would have traded Tom over Jimmy. One hundred percent, he would have. So. Uh, but, but anyways, I, I think it would be interesting. I, I kind of would be – I would love to see it uh, as a media guy, but I don't think it's going to happen. I, I more and more think that he's going to the Titans. Um, it, it, it's, it's one of two places. It's the Titans or the Patriots. It, it's not the Bucks. It's not the Colts. It, it's not the Raiders or the Chargers. There's no shot in hell either of those AFC West teams gets him. It's going to be the Pats or the Titans. Those are the only two outcomes. Those were the only two outcomes ever, right? I mean, unless the, the I think he'd be attracted to San Francisco with how good of a team they have. But obviously, they already have a had a have a guy that they that have led them to an NFC championship. So, uh, but yeah, and I thought he was going to stay initially, and I, the more and more. I don't think so, and not because I think Tom's opinions change, but as I said last week, I think Bill's opinion on this, if if Bill has the power to bring him back, which Robert Kraft sounds like he's given him the authority to uh, re-sign or not re-sign Tom Brady, which I don't think he gave him that power back when the Jimmy G deal went down, uh, I don't think Tom's, I don't, I don't think Bill's going to bring him back uh, at anything more than a very, very, very low contract. 
low in terms of what people are probably expecting him to get paid. Uh, so, and I think Tom may think of it as this kind of a slap in the face. Um, and I think he may go, he may go Tennessee. I think it makes a lot of sense for Tennessee to, to go get Tom Brady. They have a great running game. They have a good offensive line. They have a good defense. They are really built very similar to the Patriots and they play a similar style of football. And so I think it makes a lot of sense. Obviously Mike Vrabel, his boy is, uh, is out there. So, uh, I, but yeah, if, if I had to put put a gun to my head, the, Tom, Tom Brady's the Titan next year, man. I I, I think it's gonna happen. So we also had a trade today. We had Russell Okun. It was a offensive lineman for offensive lineman trade between the Panthers and the uh, Chargers. The Chargers traded 31 year old. He's gonna be 32. Russell Okun, left tackle for Trey Turner, the right guard of the Carolina Panthers. Now, this is a weird trade because it's a player-for-player trade. No picks are involved. A. B. Russell Okun, so it's straight up, one for one, two. Russell Okun is five years older than Trey Turner, who is 26. Uh, It it, it, kind of boggles my mind. Trey Turner has been a better player. He's the younger player. Now, I don't know what their salaries are, and obviously Okun plays a a more important position in tackle instead of guard, but this one doesn't make much sense to me if you're the Panthers. And this is, uh, I heard a scout say this today on one of his his shows. He said, this kind of feels Chip Kelly-ish to me. And the reason he said that was because there was an assistant coach that worked out with the uh, Los Angeles Chargers that now works with the Panthers that I think facilitated this deal. I don't think without this assistant coach, this deal w- happens. But he really, really wanted Russell Okun. And the Panthers obviously had a black hole at left tackle. They really needed to fill it. And obviously just viewed, I need a plug-and-play starter, an NFL veteran that can keep my quarterback upright. We'll, we'll worry about the right guard. That's easy, easier to fix than the left tackle. So I understand the logic of it, but you're giving a younger, more ascending talent for a guy on the wrong side of 30 who has had injury concerns, Russell Okun, I looked it up, he's missed 17 games over the past three seasons. Um, Trey Turner has missed some games as well. He's missed nine games over the past three seasons, three in 19, three in 18, three in 17. So he's a much more healthy player. He's younger. I get that he plays on the interior of the offensive line. That I, I'm sorry, that trade just does not make a lot of... A whole heck of a lot of sense to me. And the other trade we had this week was the Denver Broncos acquiring A.J. Bouye uh, from the Jacksonville Jaguars for a fourth-round pick. I love this deal for Denver. Chris Harris Jr. really fell off of a map this year production-wise. His grade with PFF was much worse. Statistically, he was terrible. Eh, not terrible. Terrible by his standards, certainly. And so he's probably starting to decline. He's also a very undersized corner out of the University of Kansas. was an undrafted free agent, uh, and that was why. So... He, he presents the challenge, like, can he play outside? He's really more of a nickel guy. Well, now you're able to acquire A.J. Bouye. And the reason I bring up Chris Harris Jr., by the way, is he's up for contract. They have to re-sign him or do something with him, or else they're going to have a giant hole at corner. So this trade now enables Vic to let Chris Harris Jr. walk. They get a guy in A.J. Bouye that can play outside. Uh, is, is a very talented corner, was awesome 
with the Texans. I had a tweet the other day with his PFF grades. He kind of struggled in uh, 19 by his standards, but he's still been uh, a very productive NFL player. Um, So below... All right, here's A.J. Bouye's grades in 17, 18, and 19 for the Jaguars after coming over from the Texans. He was an 84.5, which is a very good grade for PFF, then a 75.7 in 18, and then this year in 19, 58.4. So uh, Bouye really struggled, but even though he struggled and got had a kind of a bad PFF grade. I mean, that's not everything. Boye was top 15 in receptions allowed at his position and tackles um, for, for the Jags this past season. So I, I really like this deal for Denver. They get a corner that can play outside. Uh, that has more value than the slot corner. They now kind of ha- don't really have to re-sign Chris Harris, which they were. it felt like maybe they were going to be forced into doing that because they just didn't have any other options. So Vic goes out and gets a deal for, for a lengthy corner. A.J. Bouye is not a guy that struggles with size like Chris Harris Jr. So now I got to think that that means that Chris Harris Jr., who has a buttload of production to stand on himself, is going to hit the open market or be playing for a new team. And so it'll be really interesting to see what his market is like, who wants to try and acquire him, and... Uh, how, how much money he's going to get paid. But I think that's all the free agent deals as of now. Feels like Derek Carr's on the trade market. Uh, oh, one other thing that I thought was really interesting. The uh, Bears head coach, Matt Nagy, was listening to an interview with him with a guy that he worked with when he was on the Eagles staff. So I take this, uh, it's credible. They've, Mitch Trubisky's their guy. And he, he stood firmly behind it. And so... I know a lot of Bears fans wanted there to be competition. I expected there to be competition brought in, and there still could be the quote air quotes competition, but there's no way Mitch isn't starting week one is what it sounds like. Whether they pick up the fifth-year option on him or not, uh, it sounds like he he's the guy again in 2020, and that I think is that's pretty big news. And the interview I listened to was kind of like a dark horse. Uh, it's It's not... It's kind of for football heads like me. It's not a mainstream media thing, so it didn't catch very much attention. But that made me raise my eyebrows. And uh, the host of the show that had worked with him in in the Eagles organization said afterwards, he was like, I thought that was kind of eye-opening. And I asked him even after off the air, off the record, like, are are you looking at Derek Carr? Are you looking at Phillip Rivers? And he's been, Matt Nagy's been firm. Mitch is going to be our guy in 2020. It sounds like it's going to be kind of a make or break year. So I don't know if the Bears fans hate that they're even bringing him back. At least it sounds like from the interview that he he has to play better or he's gone, which would lead me to believe they're not going to pick up the fifth year option. But I don't know. These GMs like to save face. It's going to be tough to swallow. If you're going to have him be the starter, you might as well pick up the option. So it'll be really interesting to see what happens there. The deals will keep rolling in and we'll keep on reporting them. But that'll wrap up this week's show. Thank you so much for making us a part of your day. Follow us on Twitter. Follow Bruce on the Balcony. Uh, follow follow us. On, follow me on Twitter. Send me your DMs. Send them to the to the football Twitter. You can follow us on Facebook and Instagram as well. We want you to be more involved in the show, so send us your questions and uh, we'll get you on the air. But uh, for now, saying so long. We'll see you next week. I'm Zach.